instead of lamenting the fact that time is passing, you're getting older, more frail, and what's actually happening to you is that you are you have to knock out a new wing in your mental louvre because there's more Mona Lisa's coming in. Yeah, that image takes so much of the fear and dread of aging away. If you view it more as amassing huge mm-hmm. riches that you will that will be yours, completely yours to recollect in tranquility. The mind is a temple and inside of that temple are sacred objects called memories. And this temple is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger every second of the day. Yeah, that's amazing. Hello. In today's recording, I'll chat with my wife, Claire Akebrand, about Wordsworth's poem, Lines Composed a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey. These two recordings, this one and the recording about John Keats's poem, Ode to a Nightingale, are going to be slightly shorter than normal. I wanted to highlight each of these poems in its own recording in order to help emphasize and bring out the beauties and power of each one on its own. I think the best way to do this will be for Claire and I to discuss the poem first, which you'll hear in a minute, after which you'll hear me read the poem. I'm doing it in this order so that as I read the poem, you can maybe follow along and have in your mind all of the beauties and surprises that Claire and I emphasized in our discussion about this poem. But to begin with, as normal, a quote of the day. It's quite a subdued and unassuming quote from William Wordsworth himself. This poem, Tintern Abbey, appeared in a book of poems called Lyrical Ballads, which was published in 1798. In subsequent editions to this book, Lyrical Ballads, William Wordsworth included a prose preface in which he explained the project of the book, his approach to poetry, and these are the very first two sentences of this preface. He writes this, The first volume of these poems has already been submitted to general perusal. It was published as an experiment which I hoped might be of some use to ascertain how far, by fitting to metrical arrangement a selection of the real language of men in a state of vivid sensation, that sort of pleasure and that quantity of pleasure may be imparted, which a poet may rationally endeavor to impart. Now again, I call this quote rather uh, unassuming. At first blush, it doesn't appear to contain anything too surprising or earth-shattering. However, what William Wordsworth achieved in this poem, and in the other poems in lyrical ballads and poems he wrote shortly after, was nothing less than a total revolutionizing of what poetry is and how it gets written. In fact, many poets and scholars argue that we're still writing in the Wordsworthian mode. More than 200 years later, we are all still grandchildren, poetic grandchildren of William Wordsworth. In what way? Well, as he writes here, He wants to use the real language of men. He wants to write poetry that uses language that people actually use. Now, of course, as you're you're going to hear, this isn't completely colloquial language. He still, as he writes here, fits it into a kind of metrical arrangement. But all you would have to do is compare this to the poetry of the previous generation, poets like Samuel Johnson, for example, and you'll instantly notice that Wordsworth's language is much more grounded, much more plain, much more comprehensible. Another important point in this quote is that he wants to write in the real language of men in a state of vivid sensation. So he's combining the way that people actually talk with heightened emotions. 
These are the two ingredients of the typical Wordsworth poem. A third important point in this quote is the stated purpose for this experiment, and that is that he wants to convey pleasure. There's an implicit belief here that the purpose of poetry is to convey pleasure. That sort of pleasure and that quantity of pleasure which a poet may rationally endeavor to impart. So for more about common language, vivid sensations, and the pleasures of poetry, let's go into that chat with me and Claire. So here we are again. Claire, who are you? I am Claire Aikebrand, <laughs> author of <laughs> a poetry collection called What Was Left of the Stars in the novel The Field is White. There you go. And we're sitting down for a couple brief chats to talk about two of our favorite poems. I don't know why we're doing this in, doing this in two separate recordings. I don't know. It felt maybe like too much because I'm also attaching me reading these poems. I just felt like conversations about each plus a a reading of each, this is going to get maybe too bloated of a recording. So we're splitting them up, even though they're basically two halves of one thing. Mm. In the other one about Keats, we talk about the ways in which romanticism asserts itself as different from its predecessors. I, I try to emphasize the fact that these labels are overgeneralized conveniences only and shouldn't be held on to too adamantly. Mm-hmm. And that even inside romanticism, there are different vastly different types of romantic poets. Mm-hmm. We just spent 30 minutes talking about a poem that laments the pains and suffering caused by thought and consciousness. And mortality. And mortality. A poem that stylistically almost couldn't be more lush. Mm-hmm. In a letter, John Keats says to Percy Bysshe Shelley, you know, your poems are good. I'm slightly paraphrasing. He says, it's very cheeky of him because Shelley is slightly his elder. This very young upstart John Keats, early 20s, saying to his, and, and Shelley is quite established and famous as a poet, saying to Shelley, your poems are good, but what you should do is load every rift with ore. Fill every crack in the poem with gold, and this is something that Keats absolutely does. It couldn't be more lush. Here we have, in Wordsworth's Tintern Abbey, a poem that has almost, almost in many ways, an opposite take on the nature of consciousness. Hmm. And even stylistically is rather nothing like Keats's poem. Mm-hmm. What is it that these two poems have in common that could be called romantic? I think on the Venn diagram of these two poems, they mostly do not overlap. Mm-hmm. So what is that little area in the middle where they do? Why are In what way are they similar? What makes them romantic, quote-unquote, capital R romantic, and those other poems not? Wordsworth says, he literally says, I'm a worshiper of nature in this poem. Keats doesn't say that, but um, he shows it through the extremely lush imagery celebrating that nature. So you think there's a kind of semi-blasphemous idolization? So it's just the extremity with which they love nature that's different and, and characteristic of the Romantic period. What do you think they have in common besides that? Two things, yeah. One, which you mentioned, a love, an extreme love of nature, but also their subject matter is interior. I, actually, I mean, I, not to disagree with you, but I actually think nature just catalyzes their real subject matter, which is their inner life. Yes, but you could also say that they are arguing that they are part of that nature, and the mind is part of this landscape. Yeah, no, I like that. There, there is, tin, there are tinges of 
pantheism. I, I, I don't, maybe I shouldn't use the word pantheism, but, but a kind of collapse of boundaries between the inner and the outer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the landscape literally becomes a part of Wordsworth, and he can't yeah. stop thinking about <clears throat> it after visiting Tintern Abbey for the first time. So why is this poem a masterpiece? I think you better start on this one since you love it even more than I do. Wordsworth is, yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have become a worshiper of Wordsworth. I mean, he is, <laughs> he, is my, he is my golden calf that I bow down and pray to. Where to even begin? I love the title. It's so long. You know what I mean? <laughs> like lines composed a few miles above Tinter and Abbey. It's not even like why bring in Tinter and Abbey? What do you think Tinter and Abbey is doing for the poem? Oh well, let me ask. Let, let me answer the question that I thought yes. you were about to ask. Okay. Because the, the title is "Why Take All These Steps Away from the Actual Subject Matter?" Yeah. <laughs> so it's not called Tinter and Abbey. It's lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey. Mm -hmm. And it's not even like, it's not even really a title. It's just a description of the poem. It's just, <laughs> I, I won't title it. I'll, these are just some lines I composed. I know, because he does have other titles like Intimations of Immortality. Right. So it's not like he can't title a poem. And then he says, on revisiting the banks of the Y. <laughs> so there's another kind of like, this is a, this is a double remove. Hmm. He says in the preface to lyrical ballads, one of the most famous statements of poetry ever. Well, no, one of the most famous um, sentences in Romantic Thought. Poetry, says Wordsworth, is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling recollected in tranquility. Mm -hmm. So I think what people focus on mostly in that phrase is the first half, spontaneous overflow of powerful feeling. And yeah. they too often forget that latter half recollected in tranquility. Yeah. And for me, the, the, the real pleasure that Wordsworth affords to me is the tranquility. He's, he's a poet of Zen-like tranquility. Mm. Every time I read Wordsworth, I'm sure that my heart rate goes down, my blood pressure goes down. It's deeply and profoundly and spiritually soothing. I find his poetry so soothing. I love, I won't, you asked me a question that is dangerous because I won't be able to shut up. Why is this a masterpiece? I love how plain it is. It's provocatively plain, this language. Mm. He's getting away with saying so little. <laughs> I know. You know, it's like, and then I saw some stuff, and it was just like clouds and rocks and trees. He's not really trying too hard to be a poet. I love that about it. Um, I love, I guess maybe mostly if I had to, I mean, maybe the main answer would be just coming on after our conversation about Keats. When I read Keats, I understand him because I... I know what it's like to feel tortured by your own mind mm -hmm. and to lament one's mortality. Mm. But when I read Wordsworth, I am filled with tremendous hope. He sees the mind as something noble and divine mm -hmm. and the ultimate source of our joy. The mind is a source of joy for Wordsworth. Mm. Joy. But there's no other word for it. And I, I absolutely love that. Yeah. And don't you think he's uh, the poster child of delayed gratification? <laughs> You're laughing because you think <laughs> that I am a... I know that you like to save the best for less. <laughs> I do. <laughs> no, but I don't know. I guess I think he could teach us a lot about what it means to experience something and then to reap even greater benefits from it later. Yeah. And not immediately. That there's something happens as our mind matures or as we 
get older, yes, that allows us to more fully experience that. Yes, yes. So in a way, he makes yeah. aging seem very hopeful and like a beautiful thing. Absolutely. We talked in the other podcast about Keats about the contradictions. Mm. There are contradictions here too. They might be more subtle. I think Wordsworth, he's seen as this poet that extols and celebrates childhood. And he's seen as a poet that extols and celebrates nature. And those aren't false. He does. Mm. But if we were to ask ourselves, does he celebrate childhood or adulthood more? Does he celebrate nature more or the mind more? Mm. He celebrates both equally. Mm. So for, for me, when I read Wordsworth, it's just this exuberant sense of peace and joy and goodness everywhere. But I love what you say about like time. Time is so often seen as a kind of curse or a predator that stalks us, you know, that we can't escape from. Right. And we just live a life of slow decay. Yeah. Well, let's actually get to the poem. I mean, he says that when he was a child, he bounded o'er the mountains. Mm. He says, for nature then to me was all in all. I cannot paint what then I was. Mm -hmm. You know, the sounding cataract haunted me like a passion. The mountain and the deep and gloomy wood, their colors and their forms were then to me an appetite, a feeling, and a love. Don't you love that he just says their colors and their forms? Imagine <laughs> so Keats, great. Imagine Keats doing that. It's so great. The it, colors and the forms. It's like, he's so... <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, we think of Wordsworth as like the poster child for stodgy, unexciting poetry. But he announces in the preface to Lyrical Ballads that these poems were, quote, an experiment. Mm. Whenever I'm feeling obnoxious and someone asks me what my who my favorite experimental poet is, not that this happens all the time, I want to answer Wordsworth. <laughs> he calls himself experimental and he absolutely is. I saw colors and forms that I loved. The most That reminds me of Wallace Stevens suddenly. Oh yeah. Yeah, Wallace Stevens is an absolute grandchild, without a doubt. In childhood nature was this supreme, all encompassing source of joy and dizzy raptures, right? He says that time has passed. And all its aching joys. Mm. Aching joys. How great of a phrase is that? We all know the joys that are so profound that they hurt. It reminds me of a time when I think my son, our son. <laughs> our son, yeah. <laughs> I think he was five or six and he loved Halloween so much and everything pumpkin related. <laughs> and the pumpkin patch uh, opened up again for the season and, and he was smiling, but he also, <laughs> he also had tears in his eyes. Yeah. And he said, when you love something, it also makes you sad. Mm -hmm. There you go with the aching joys. And childhood. I mean, there's something about childhood that is miraculous, pure. It, and he's going back to the Keats poem. It, it's the closest that humans get to that sense of animal moment by moment living. Children, yeah. of course, experience grief and sorrow and pain and fear and anxiety. But you know what I mean? They, they get hurt and then they forget and they keep playing. So it's it's a time of innocent oneness with the moment. Yeah. And that moment could be a moment of aching joy, or it could, could be a moment of dizzy rapture. And there's a kind of elegiac tone to this poem. That time has passed, and all its aching joys are now no more, and all its dizzy raptures. This is something that is a loss, a real loss that we should mourn. Yeah. But what do we get in in return? I love this phrase. Not for this faint eye, nor mourn, nor murmur. Right? There's my Wordsworth. There's no need to be sad about this. Mm. We all miss our childhoods, but let's not mourn. Other gifts have followed. For such loss, I would believe abundant recompense. Mm. This makes me want to cry every time I get to this moment. Abundant recompense. So not just recompense, but abundant recompense. We. So Claire, what is the... I'm just asking you so that I shut up. People are sick of my voice. 
So yeah, we can we have this thing in childhood, this pure innocence, this momentary, this ability to live in the moment, hmm. this kind of animal oneness with nature. We lose it. What do we gain in return? I think we get a very new kind of joy. Um, like he says, he hears the sad music of humanity. And that, strangely, does really highlight a joy we're feeling at the moment. For example, um, you know, as an adult versus, you know, as a child, having an experience in nature, you see something beautiful and you have in your mind at the same time the sad music of humanity. You've seen, you've seen things. <laughs> it reminds me of the book The Plague. There's a part in the middle of this horrible plague. A doctor experiences real joy, a kind of joy that forgets nothing. And that knows death. That knows death, right. So that might not sound like a good recompense, but I, I can only say from my own experience, some of my greatest joys are the kind that happen in the midst of, of difficult things. Whatever sadness or anxieties, they, they highlight that joy. Right. At the end of this poem, there's that idea of the um, the mind becoming a mansion of all of these experiences. And I guess I had this idea or this image of our minds becoming like museums of all of these kinds of moments, like visiting Tintern Abbey for him, things that don't even seem that significant. If we notice them, if we take note, then eventually aging means not just <laughs> dying, but it also means that we will have this huge collection, this museum of all of these moments that we can recall, that we can refer to, and that become literally become part of us. Yeah. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me. You go, that's bad. Mm -hmm. Disturbs me with what? With the joy. The joy of what? Of elevated thoughts. Isn't thinking so joyous? But isn't that joy slightly disturbing? I mean, he's just so wonderfully nuanced and weird. This is what you were saying about the contrasts, you know? A sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused, whose dwelling is the light of setting suns and the round ocean and the living air and the blue sky and the mind of man. Right, he sets the mind up against, compares them, or puts them on the same level as suns. It's the whole cosmos. Yeah. And then you're absolutely right. He says, I, where I want to land is where you hinted at with this, this image of the museum and the mansion of all lovely forms. Mm -hmm. But just to get more, a little bit more slowly in there, how beautiful is it that two-thirds down into this quite long poem, he, he suddenly turns to his sister and starts addressing her out of nowhere. <laughs> we don't see her coming necessarily. I get to this poem and want to cry all over again. Why is this so beautiful? Well, I guess... Uh the things he's feeling are so great that he needs a witness and he has to turn to somebody. Yeah, I just, I mean, I'm thinking much more simply than that. I just love the intimacy. It's just yeah. so much love for her comes through and I'm, I'm profoundly moved by his love for her. I do know that they were extremely close and they would do a lot of walking together all over the Lake District. And it's that thing where if you have something that you, is precious to you, you want to, you want to share it with someone you love. Mm. Thou, my dearest friend, my dear, dear friend, my dear, dear sister. I mean, he, he just can't get over how much he loves her. <laughs> yeah. It's just so sad and heartbreaking. I mean, sad in like the sweetest way. Yeah, it's that unbridled. This whole poem has a wonderful unbridled sense. Well, people make fun of the romantics, and I get it. It's, it's easy to make fun of them for being like, slightly sentimental and trite and melodramatic, but... 
Yeah, don't but... We, don't we love our sisters? I mean, can't we just say in a poem? <laughs> I'm sick of it. Can't we just say in a poem how much we love our sisters? <laughs> I don't want to live in a world where poems like that get made fun of. Yeah. Well, sentimental is a problem when there's no thought to it, but it's not like he is lacking that. <laughs> yeah. And then by far the best part of the poem is this prayer that he makes to this prayer that he makes on behalf of his sister or for his sister. He says that nature can so impress with quietness and beauty and so feed with lofty thoughts that neither evil tongues, rash judgments, nor the sneers of selfish men, nor greetings where no kindness is, nor all the dreary intercourse of daily life shall e'er prevail against us, or disturb our cheerful faith that all which we behold is full of blessings. I mean... <laughs> I don't know what to call that. It's a, it's salvation. I mean, it's nothing less than salvation. All that we behold is full of blessings. You know, he's... Nothing will prevail. None of the sources of suffering. Life has many sources of suffering to offer us. Evil tongues, rash judgments, selfish men, greetings where no kindness is. I love this, all the dreary intercourse of daily life. Yeah. You know, like going to the store, getting groceries, getting your kids to brush their teeth, saying hello to people in the hallway that you rather would not have bumped into, waiting for the bus, getting a flat tire, filling up with gas. Right. It just it goes it goes on and on. It's just like so much garbage we have to deal with. I know, and then like meanwhile, there's this place a few miles above Tintern Abbey, where if you go there, you have lofty thoughts that redeem everything. But it's not just that one place. No, I know. All That's which we behold is full of blessings. You just open your eyes and look at a thing, and what you be are beholding is full of blessings. He's not even talking about nature anymore. No. It's just life existing. Yeah. You see, could you ever see yourself writing a, a line like that? I want. I wish. I hope. I mean, I'd love to be able to. I mean, and to really believe it, that I think that's what's the genius here. Well, I have moments where I believe that. I mean, that's the why. I mean, that's the thing about this poem. I wouldn't love it so much if I didn't think it was true. Right. But I w also wouldn't love it so much if I wasn't constantly forgetting that it's true. I get glimpses of feelings like that, specifically when I am in nature, but not all things. <laughs> no, I think, you know, he's like, my, my therapist, how do I not torture myself with thoughts of my own inadequacy? Or, you know, I have the social anxiety problem, so I'm always up at night thinking, oh, I said that stupid thing to that person, and they think I'm an idiot, and she thinks I'm dumb, and he thinks I'm stupid, and I must look so stupid, and why am I so stupid? You know, that, <laughs> that's what my mind does to me. So my therapist is trying very patiently to teach me to not do this mm -hmm. and become a very popular mode of therapy now, mindfulness, mm -hmm. mindfulness meditation. Um, mindful eating is something that she wants me to practice. Mm -hmm. When you eat a sandwich, eat that sandwich. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Don't also scroll through your phone. Don't also think about some lesson. Don't also relive something that's haunting you. Be in the moment with that thing. Taste it. You know, I tried that once, and it was actually amazing. I'm telling you. I had a I had a little boiled egg on my plate and some stupid uh, cheese sandwich or something. Yeah. But I I remembered that, and I I imagined the chicken. <laughs> anyway, I was thinking the chicken in my mind. Yeah. It worked though. It was amazing. I'm but just but just chewing the food and thinking about the <laughs> textures and thinking about the flavors and noticing it and okay. being being present with it. 
I mean, this isn't something that I can do really very often. It takes a lot of oh, mental yeah. and emotional work, but it was an intense lunch. <laughs> Wordsworth is right to say that all that we behold is full of blessings. Yeah. This is a mode of being in the world that is not easy to attain, but is real. Everything is a miracle. Mm. So he says to his sister, Therefore let the moon shine on thee in thy solitary walk, and let the misty mountain winds be free to blow against thee, and in after years when these wild ecstasies shall be matured into a sober pleasure, when thy mind shall be a mansion for all lovely forms, thy memory be as a dwelling place for all sweet sounds and harmonies, O oh, then, if solitude or fear or pain or grief should be thy portion, with what healing thoughts of tender joy wilt thou remember me and these my exhortations? I love your image of the museum. Instead of lamenting the fact that time is passing, you're getting closer to death, you're getting older, more frail, and what's actually happening to you is that you are you have to knock out a new wing in your mental louvre because there's more Mona Lisa's coming in. Every single second wow, of the day, that's good. <laughs> there are more. Like that egg is like that. That belongs in the Louvre. It, it's a miracle. The memory of it is there's something sacred about it. Yeah, it's like I said. It, that image it takes so much of the fear and dread of aging away. If you view it more as amassing huge mm -hmm. uh, riches, yeah, that you will that will be yours, yeah. Completely yours to recollect in tranquility. Precisely, to recollect in tranquility. So you have these swooning moments of emotion out there. Isn't this piece of nature beautiful? But that's only half of it. You have to, you have to tranquilly preserve it. Mm -hmm. The mind is a temple, and inside of that temple are sacred objects called memories. Mm. And this temple is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger every second of the day. Yeah, that's amazing. It's like the most hopeful triumphant, transcendent poem that I know. No, I remember when I read this for the first time, it was in preparation to go on a study abroad in England. Yeah, she's about to brag, because you've actually been to Tintern Abbey. I know. And I I still haven't, and I'm, I'm not better. It was so interesting, because I felt like I was uh, Wordsworth the first time around at Tintern Abbey, you know what I mean? Mm. And I knew it, too. I was like, First of all, I expected, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a nice nature poem. This is going to be full of rich English imagery that's going to whet my appetite for going. <laughs> but it was something completely different, but um, something yeah, it, much it, better than I thought it would be. It looks bland on the outside, this poem. This poem looks bland. But if you get past the blandness, through the blandness comes the <laughs> transcendentness. No, but honestly, this poem really prepared me in a weird way for my for this huge experience in my life that has shaped me completely forever. This study abroad, um, I was trying to remember how old I was. 23? That's so weird. Were you really 23? Oh. <laughs> that's exactly the age Wordsworth was the first time. Oh my he, gosh. I, oh, that's weird. <laughs> he write, yeah, he writes this poem when he's 28. F five years later. Five You're years right. have passed. Five summers. That's too weird. No, but it prepared me for my trip because my mind was primed for this idea that we can have experiences that will become sweeter to us in the future. Well, he says in this poem, food for future years. Yes, and that stuck in my mind the whole time I was on this trip. And I can't tell you how true that has become. Every single spring, 
uh, when I start hearing birds and this, and I can smell flowers, the, the entire English landscape comes rushing back to me and is available to me in a way it wasn't when I was there. Food for future years. Think about your future self. Your future self will need this memory, so pay attention. Yes, exactly. It's it's you, actually, that's wonderfully brought this phrase into our marriage as a kind of <laughs> annoying <laughs> corrective, haven't you? <laughs> Yeah. If one of us is out in the world on some <laughs> hike and either grumpy or staring at one's phone, often, I mean, not all the time, but from time to time, yeah. we'll encourage each other to be in the moment and say, food for future years. <laughs> Do your future self a favor. Your future self will be hungry and needs this. Yeah. Swoon? Yes, but also, why do you think he brings Tinter and Abby into the picture what do you think Tinter and Abbey, this uh, yeah. ruin, this ruin does yeah. for the poem? It's this cathedral that, you should all Google it, it's this cathedral that is, yeah, a ruin and has no mm -hmm. ceiling and is open to the air and grass. So it's like these, Sheep grazing in it. And this, you know, among these columns. Mm -hmm. Well, it's this wonderful image of this mind slash nature meld, you know, nature and then a human thing completely intermingling. Oh, I like that. And the imagination, you know, you can kind of fill in the gaps with your imagination. You can see the roof, mm -hmm. see what it could have been. But there's this total collapse of the boundary between the past and the present, inside, outside, the mind and what the mind. He has That's this wonderful quiet. he has this wonderful line in here about therefore am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains, and of all that we behold from this green earth, of all the mighty world of Ioneer, both what they half create and what perceive. So we do look out into the world and we only half perceive it. Mm. What we're also doing is half creating it. We, oh, yeah. we create, we don't really see the world objectively. I mean, I think this is true scientifically speaking. We half see it and half create it. We project certain things onto it. Mm. We only see it through the lens of our attention, what we need to see in the moment, what we want to see. So the cathedral is this one, this ruined cathedral open to the clouds and the rain and the sky is is both half seen and half created mm. with the mind. Nature and the mind are doing this wonderful symbiotic dance. I love that. Nature living in his mind. Right. Oh, what a good poem. So this is Lines Composed a Few Miles Above Tintern Abbey, on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, July 13th, 1798, by William Wordsworth. Five years have passed. Five summers, with the length of five long winters. And again I hear these waters rolling from their mountain springs with a soft inland murmur. Once again do I behold these steep and lofty cliffs that on a wild, secluded scene impress thoughts of more deep seclusion, and connect the landscape with the quiet of the sky. The day is come when again I repose here, under this dark sycamore, and view these plots of cottage ground, these orchard tufts, which at this season, with their unripe fruits, are clad in one green hue, and lose themselves mid groves and copses. Once again I see these hedgerows, hardly hedgerows, Little lines of sportive wood run wild, these pastoral farms green to the very door, 
and wreaths of smoke sent up in silence from among the trees. With some uncertain notice, as might seem of vagrant dwellers in the household woods or of some hermit's cave, where by his fire the hermit sits alone. These beauteous forms, through a long absence, have not been to me as is a landscape to a blind man's eye, but oft in lonely rooms and amid the din of towns and cities I have owed to them, in hours of weariness, sensations sweet, felt in the blood and felt along the heart, and passing even into my purer mind with tranquil restoration, feelings too of unremembered pleasure, such perhaps as have no slight or trivial influence on that best portion of a good man's life, his little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. Nor less I trust to them I may have owed another gift of aspect more sublime, that blessed mood in which the burden of the mystery, in which the heavy and the weary weight of all this unintelligible world is lightened, that serene and blessed mood in which the affections gently lead us on until the breath of this corporeal frame and even the motion of our human blood almost suspended, we are laid asleep in body and become a living soul, while with an eye made quiet by the power of harmony and the deep power of joy, we see into the life of things. If this be but a vain belief, yet oh, how oft in darkness and amid the many shapes of joyless daylight, when the fretful stir unprofitable and the fever of the world have hung upon the beatings of my heart, how oft in spirit have I turned to thee, O Sylvan Why, thou wanderer through the woods, how often has my spirit turned to thee. And now, with gleams of half-extinguished thought, with many recognitions dim and faint, and somewhat of a sad perplexity, the picture of the mind revives again, while here I stand, not only with the sense of present pleasure, but with pleasing thoughts that in this moment there is life and food for future years. And so I dare to hope, though changed, no doubt, from what I was when first I came among these hills, when like a row I bounded o'er the mountains by the sides of the deep rivers and the lonely streams wherever nature led, more like a man flying from something that he dreads than one who sought the thing he loved. For nature then, the coarser pleasures of my boyish days, and their glad animal movements all gone by, to me was all in all. I cannot paint what then I was. The sounding cataract haunted me like a passion. The tall rock, the mountain, and the deep and gloomy wood, their colors and their forms were then to me an appetite, a feeling, and a love that had no need of a remoter charm by thought supplied or any interest unborrowed from the eye. That time is past, and all its aching joys are now no more, and all its dizzy raptures. Not for this faint I, nor mourn, nor murmur. Other gifts have followed, for such loss I would believe abundant recompense. For I have learned to look on nature not as in the hour of thoughtless youth, but hearing oftentimes the still, sad music of humanity, nor harsh nor grating, though of ample power to chasten and subdue. And I have felt a presence that disturbs me with the joy of elevated thoughts, a sense sublime of something far more deeply interfused 
whose dwelling is the light of setting suns, and the round ocean, and the living air, and the blue sky, and in the mind of man. A motion and a spirit that impels all thinking things, all objects of all thought, and rolls through all things. Therefore am I still a lover of the meadows and the woods and mountains, and of all that we behold from this green earth, of all the mighty world of eye and ear, both what they half create and what perceive, well pleased to recognize in nature and the language of the sense the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart, and soul of all my moral being. Nor, perchance, if I were not thus taught, should I the more suffer my genial spirits to decay, for thou art with me here upon the banks of this fair river. Thou, my dearest friend, my dear, dear friend, and in thy voice I catch the language of my former heart, and read my former pleasures in the shooting lights of thy wild eyes. Oh, yet a little while may I behold in thee what I was once, my dear, dear sister, and this prayer I make, knowing that nature never did betray the heart that loved her. Tis her privilege, through all the years of this our life, to lead from joy to joy. For she can so inform the mind that is within us, so impress with quietness and beauty, and so feed with lofty thoughts that neither evil tongues, rash judgments, nor the sneers of selfish men, nor greetings where no kindness is, nor all the dreary intercourse of daily life, shall e'er prevail against us, or disturb our cheerful faith, that all which we behold is full of blessings. Therefore, let the moon shine on thee in thy solitary walk, and let the misty mountain winds be free to blow against thee. And in after years, when these wild ecstasies shall be matured into a sober pleasure, when thy mind shall be a mansion for all lovely forms, thy memory be a dwelling place for all sweet sounds and harmonies. Oh, then, if solitude, or fear, or pain, or grief should be thy portion, with what healing thoughts of tender joy wilt thou remember me, and these my exhortations? Nor perchance if I should be where I no more can hear thy voice, nor catch from thy wild eyes these gleams of past existence, wilt thou then forget that on the banks of this delightful stream we stood together, and that I, so long a worshipper of nature, hither came unwearied in that service, rather say with warmer love, oh, with far deeper zeal of holier love. Nor wilt thou then forget that after many wanderings, many years of absence, these steep woods and lofty cliffs and this green pastoral landscape were to me more dear, both for themselves and for thy sake. That's it for now. Next up, me and Claire on John Keats's poem, Ode to a Nightingale. <laughs> 